0: Welcome back, everybody. This is Dawn Tree, and you are listening to Atypical Parenting. We are so lucky. Again, today we have a follow-up episode with Dr. Pada, who is a physician and a board-certified pain management specialist and addiction specialist and anesthesiologist and man all around because he also has an MBA, and we're going to talk to him today about what to do as far as planning for the future. As parents, we know we're not going to be around forever. I'm sure all of you, just like me, are worrying about, like, what happens to my kid after I'm gone? So let's jump in and, and talk about that today. Welcome, Dr. Potter. Welcome back.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: So tell me just a very quick little bit about you. I know you're a physician, but you have this whole other world to you, I think.
1: Yeah. So I got my medical degree here in the States at UMKC. I did anesthesia and surgery residency stuff and ended up becoming an anesthesiologist. But I was really interested in research a lot, and I was getting into pain as well at the same time. But I was interested in research. And one of the areas of research that I was very particularly interested in was cost-benefit analysis. Trying to figure out, was a particular therapy that we were recommending, was it one, beneficial, and two, was it cost-effective? So I started to analyze almost everything that I did from a cost-benefit analysis. You know, was this medication working better than another one? And what was the difference in cost and what was the utility of that medication for a particular thing? So I, I really started to understand that. And as I got more and more into it, I realized that I needed to improve my education. I had a medical degree and I liked political science and I had a background in computers but I didn't have enough background in business. So I went off and got an MBA um, and to the point in where spare I, time. I actually I, I did it in about a year um, and I was very happy with it because it allowed me to uh, go to Europe and work in a financial arbitrage and I got to do currency trading um, until my wife uh-huh. told me to get back here. And because and, and, I was I was sleeping probably like two hours a night and I just was so enamored with currency trading that I didn't know that there was anything else. Just because I did a deep dive in it, I wanted to know everything. But I also had a background in crisis management and crisis investing. And so I came back to the U.S. and I had always been into real estate. had always done the business side. And I love educating. So I started to educate my physician colleagues. And as I educated my physician colleagues, something came up. I was helping them figure out how they were going to retire, how they were going to run their businesses, what they were going to do. But a question kept coming up that that was troublesome. Some of them had adult autistic children. And how were they going to manage that? They had figured out what they were going to do for themselves. But what were they going to do about the adult autistic child, the dependent, that was now going to be in their mid-20s, then in their mid-30s, and now in their mid-40s? And how are they going to manage it? And so that became something of a focus and that became something of how do we anticipate that? What do we do? And so I spent a lot of time pondering that and coming to some tangible conclusions that, you know, we can talk about because I think that there's so much fear around it. There's so much fear that people ignore that elephant in the room Mm -hmm. thinking it will work out and it won't.
0: Well, it's the whole topic of death in America, right? We just generally don't want to think about that. So we avoid the topic. Yeah, And I think when we're thinking about our autistic children as adults, there's some sort of part of us that wants to believe that, oh, you know, there's programs, they'll be fine, they'll get money from the government, whatever happens. But those systems are so difficult to navigate to start with. To think that that's just magically going to happen and somebody's going to hook them up with whatever services they're they're eligible for, like that's just pie in the sky. We really do need to make a plan.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so it's more, and I'm not giving legal or business advice here, <laughs> so or even medical advice because I, you know, it's it, we're, we're 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 talking in general, but the concept behind anticipating what happens is really important and people don't talk about it so let's have that conversation for a second because i think it's it's worthwhile so when the child is young and they're going to school there are all kinds of programs afforded to the child and to the parent that retain the child in school and that works out pretty well because the child lives at home and the child can usually participate in school and there's a lot of support networks The adult is there to get the child into those support networks. And we have an entire social services system designed to have no child left behind. And so it certainly pulls that child along in that educational modality. And it also retains the child in the home. The issue comes about is as the child matures and how much of a participation they can have in society and can it be a meaningful participation in that can the child make enough money to be self-sustaining and the analytics of that is the issue because it takes about in current dollars about sixty-five thousand dollars a year to be a self-sustaining autistic adult and that's like a lot of money it is because there's a lot of medical expenses there's a lot of miscellaneous expenses that are more than what is normally expected Because you're not going to be living necessarily on your own. You may not be able to make your own food. You may not be able to be in a safe environment unless you're in in a comfortable place. And you need fundamentally more support than the average person. So what ends up happening is a lot of the kids end up becoming separated from their parents and going on to the roles for Medicaid. And Medicaid then becomes really their guardian. And usually they end up in an assisted living facility and the key element is to have that long-term plan that anticipates that assisted living facility and still be able to provide comfort and support for things that the assisted living facility can't provide now if you directly bequeath something to your child the first thing medicaid will do is they will take everything because they will spin it down to the where the child has nothing just like every other child and then you have the problem. And, and so it has to be done in such a way that you've created a trust with the child being a beneficiary for specific things. And you, you essentially create a living trust with the child being the beneficiary.
0: Now, when you have a living trust, are they still eligible for Medicaid?
1: They are eligible for Medicaid within the contact because it's the, the child doesn't own the trust. The child is the beneficiary of that trust. And the trust is not going to necessarily pay the money. The trust is going to provide incidental care. And it's going to provide appropriate, necessary care over time. So you have to have a good trustee that you do trust. And, you know, under an ideal circumstance, someone would come up, this is a great idea, someone would come up with a company that would really look out for the best interest and would be the trustee for all these kids. A trustee other than the federal government because the federal government has their own agenda. And so the child being the beneficiary would get some benefit from it and they wouldn't have a spin down of everything that was left to them. Now, that's one way to do it. And there are other ways as well. Sometimes what I've seen is, especially with some of the folks I've worked with, they will leave a piece of real estate that generates income and generates a net income and sits in a separate entity, and that generates a net income that feeds the trust, and then the trust feeds the child for specific things. So it doesn't give the child money all the time. It gives just enough that it gets certain things done for them. And so there's well-defined rules of engagement inside the trust that, that are pre-set up. But you have to really discuss that with your attorney, and you really want to make sure that it, it's done the correct way and you want the real estate done in the correct way. And that's I have a company called Red Pill Capital where I work with people to to help them figure out, you know, mostly educating them on the right way to buy real estate, mostly educating them on cash flow, mostly educating them on all of the parameters associated with the financial elements of doing this stuff and then get them engaged to the right set of attorneys and and help them figure this mess out. I'm not encouraging anybody to go there. I'm just telling you, that's where I do it. And we have educational programs, but the key element is get to a good trust attorney. Make this plan when the child is young. preset this. Don't wait till you've separated and the child is now a ward of the state. If you do it then, then you do have an issue. And then it's going to be look like you're, you're hiding money. You want to preset this. Th- these are things that you want to do. Just like you're anticipating your retirement, you have to anticipate the child. Now, the other thing, and and I know this is strange, the other thing that, that I've run across, we've had a conversation about hedonic drive. The thing is that children, one, they're incredibly lonely. Two, you'll find that some of them, because of that loneliness, will become hypersexual. And so managing their fertility is really important because otherwise you're gonna end up with an autistic child who has a child. And that child of the autistic child may not be autistic. And it may be two autistic adults that are having a non-autistic child. And that creates all kinds of other complications. And anticipating that and thinking about that and making sure that your autistic child, female or male, is in an appropriate situation And, and worrying about the reproductive capacity is really important and putting actual thought into it. I've just seen some horrendous situations and it's literally scares the bejesus out of me when I think about some of the things that like, you know, you'll find out that now your autistic child has had a child with a perfectly normal baby and you're in your fifties and sixties, and now you're a parent. Because you've taken custody of that child and now you've got an autistic child in a home and you've got a four-year-old in your home and there's no possibility that you're ever retiring because you're going to work to 90. And so anticipating that and planning that is really important. Uh, Think through all of the possible ramifications and make plans that are appropriate.
0: Right. What would you say to parents whose children are already older, you know, maybe in their thirties and, and like my son is 32 where, you know, I've, I did not come from a terribly literate financial family, right? Like I grew up in poverty and the best financial advice my mother told me was to buy a good life insurance policy. (laughs) Like that was how she thought you should manage your money. Just make sure you had a life insurance policy.
1: And so let's go back to that life insurance policy. Make sure it's not payable to the child because the state will take it. (laughs) Guaranteed. So make sure that it goes into the beneficiary trust um, and it does not go to the child. Make sure it goes somewhere else that it becomes the benefit for the child, but they don't immediately take it all um, Mm -hmm. because that's Mm -hmm. what frequently will happen. Uh, And not frequently. That's how it works. That's how it's supposed to work. So, if, if you have a million dollars going to that child, they're going to take it all until it's gone.
0: So, what else besides a life insurance policy can a parent do if their children are already adults?
1: Um, you know, you can transfer, you know, most adults will have some form of retirement left over. That can be transferred over to the child, and that can be part of a beneficiary trust. Now, that gets a little bit more complicated because the beneficiary of the retirement plan will have to register that. And so because the trust is an independent actor, it will not be immune from all the taxes associated with it. So it's not a direct transfer. Uh. So you're gonna get hit with taxes when you go into a trust. And so that's again, something that you work with, with a really, really good accountant that will help you manage that. And we'll figure out how to get the maximum amount into the trust and not get it diluted. Because right now, if you have a retirement account, you can give your retirement account to your children. And then when you would have had to be forced to start removing the money, that's when they would, when you would have been 65 or 68, you would have been forced into removing money from your retirement account. That's when they would start to get taxation and they would have that issue going forward in the trust situation. As soon as you transferred it, you would have to start paying taxes on it. And so you have to anticipate that and, and plan that out with a good accountant. And there's ways around it completely. That's why I prefer real estate as the vehicle, because you can do exchanges, 1031 exchanges. You can do delayed sales trusts, Delaware sales trusts as well. You can do all kinds of things that defer the recognition of income and prevent you from having to immediately pay the taxes.
0: What if your child is higher functioning, they don't qualify for a home of sorts, and they really just are going to need to pay their bills.
1: So, and I had a conversation literally with somebody the other day. So what she did, the child is higher functioning, doesn't qualify for the home, but she needs to generate income for him and has to come up with it. So what she did, very interestingly, because she was very interested in the autism world and she's a very strong advocate she started a assisted living facility.
0: Wow. She
1: started one of them and then she started two of them and now she has six of them. And all of a sudden she's making about $100,000 net a month. And she's gonna leave those as a legacy for the child. And, wow. and it didn't take her much to start. And if anybody has an interest in those, I that's something that I would love to chat with somebody about. So typically what you do is you buy a large house and you put one or two people per bedroom, and you have one bathroom per bedroom, and you typically will charge between, well, the Medicaid rates in that area are about 3,000 a month. The private rates are about 5,700 a month per person. In a a single occupancy, in a double, it's about 20% less. Basically, she's been filling those up. And because it's an assisted living facility, she typically has eight to 10 people per home, typically four to five bedrooms. You convert every usable room to a bedroom. So a lot of the old dining rooms get converted to bedrooms. A lot of the garages get converted to bedrooms. You have basically one person working there per 10 people or eight people in the house. So it has an overhead cost of about 35% of gross. And so you end up keeping about 65% net. It's a great model. And there's a particular educational protocol that I would recommend if somebody really wants to get into that.
0: I'm so interested in that. Can you tell me more about how you would?
1: Yeah, so there's a group called RALNAT and they're a really good group. They That's what they specialize in. There's actually a conference four times a year and they go through all of the setup on this. The educational for this is probably cost you about $700 to get fully educated on it.
0: One of the fascinating things about this idea is that not only are you attacking the financial issue here, you're also potentially providing a support community.
1: And eventually that autistic child may end up living there. That's how most people get into these assisted facilities because they have somebody that's a a parent that's not doing well, or they have a child that's not doing well. And they say, well, I'm going to make sure that I create a home and I'm going to have, it's basically house hacking, but I'm going to have- I'm going to have other people um, help support this child and give the research. That's a great idea. Um, and that's another, another methodology.
0: Phenomenal. Phenomenal idea. Thank you.
1: Sure. If people want to reach out and chat, I'm happy to provide info. If they want to go to that side of my life, that's uh, Red Pill Capital with a K, K A P I T A L dot com. And that's a whole different side of what I do as in terms of being a physician. That's my business side. And we, Help people get educated on that stuff and kind of push them or guide them into the right direction and give suggestions. There's so many solutions to our problems, but each one's kind of individual. You have to tailor that solution to the plan of that individual. There's not one solution fits all.
0: That's so true. That's so true. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Potter. It's been a massive pleasure chatting with you today. You are a wealth of information.
1: Great. Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: You're welcome. Red Pill Capital with a K. Any other contact information you'd like to share if people are interested in about your work?
1: Um, just look me up on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is probably the most direct way.
0: Great, excellent. Thank you so much. It's been amazing. I appreciate you giving up your Saturday morning for me. All
1: right, thank you.